0: Hello, and welcome again to Trinity Chippenham. Especially if it's your first time here, I'd just like to add my welcome to David's welcome earlier. It's great to have you with us. Um, it's a joy to, to have you worshiping with us this afternoon. Uh, so today, we're going to be um, looking at the third in a, a three-part uh, mini-series that we've been doing um, over the, the month of July. Um, two or three times a year, as a church, we like to have a, a mini-series, a preaching series, on our values as a church. So we have a whole set of values uh, that we set up um, when, we, when we started the church two and a half years ago, and the values try and shape uh, what we're about as a church. That we, we, we define them to try and say this is what we want to be about as a church. Things like we want to be a church that pursues God in the Bible, a church that pours out our hearts in response to him, a church that cares for each other, a church that cares for our community, a church where we're equipping each other to serve, a church where we're reaching out to the broken. Um, a church where we value relationships and strong relationships and family and, and godly singleness. All these things. You can see the values, uh, not on that banner there, on the website. You can see the, uh, the, the values on the website. Um, if, you, if you go there, I won't run through them all now. But the, the one value that we've chosen to focus on for this little three-week period is uh, value seven, if you want to look it up. It's called equ- equipping others uh, to, to, to play their part in the church. Equipping each other to play their part in the church. And we've chosen not to take a broad view of that value, but to focus in on one particular area where we can equip each other and help each other to serve. And that's the area of money and finance, as David mentioned earlier. Now, again, if you're a visitor here, please don't think, oh, they're talking about money again in in church. Actually, uh, this is the first time we've really talked about money and finance uh, since we started the church two and a half years ago. And that's deliberate. We deliberately didn't want to make money a thing because we don't want people who come to the church to think, I've got to pay to be here, or feel obligated to give. Um, We we want to make uh, money not a thing, so we're open with our our finances. There's an update every week in the weekly email. Um, If if you'd like to sign up for that, please let us know. Uh, It gives all the the news about the church, um, uh, what's what's happening in the life of the church. We give an update, but we don't ever push finance. We don't have an offering bag going around like some churches do. You may have noticed. But we do want to talk about money because money is an important issue. And it's important because Jesus thought it was important. It's actually one of the things that he preached about the most. And money is important because it kind of gives a window into our hearts. How we spend our money, how we spend our resources, and even uh, down to the the small details of of our our, our giving, it it reveals uh, where our hearts are at. And that's why it was important to Jesus. So, as I say, this is the third week in our series on, on money. And we've been looking through a, a portion of Jesus' teaching in uh, Matthew chapter 6 to help us think about what Jesus teaches about the whole area of, of money and giving. So, uh, two weeks ago, we looked at uh, the first part of Matthew chapter 6 where Jesus takes us right to the heart of the issue. He says, uh, When you give, don't do it uh, out of show to try and make people think you're good. Uh, when you give, you should do it in secret. What really matters is your heart and whether your heart is generous as a response to the generosity of, of God, the generosity you've been shown by him. And then uh, last week we saw uh, there are two places that we can invest uh, our, our resources, our energy, our time, and in particular our money that Jesus, that Jesus highlights. And that's uh, earth. We can be investing in earth, the things of this life, things that surround us, the things of, of daily life, uh, or we can invest in heaven. We can invest in the things of God, our own relationship with him, other people's relationships with him, um, drawing people who don't know him into a relationship with him, the things of heaven, the things of God. We can invest there or invest on earth. And only one of them is a secure investment. On earth, moth and rust decay and thieves break in and steal. In heaven, we have a lasting reward that never um, runs out and it's, it, it never decays. So we saw that last week. And this week... We're going to complete the series by completing the chapter in Matthew chapter 6. And we'll move on to what Jesus teaches about next, which is the area of anxiety and worry. In particular, anxiety about the daily things of life. What am I going to eat? What am I going to wear? Things that you need money to buy. So uh, worry, I I imagine, is a, a topic that is relevant for most, if not all of us. Uh, something that is uh, close to our hearts. Worry is a horrible emotion. It's the, the feeling that uh, there's something in your life that you want to control but you can't. And there's the unknown. What's going to happen next? There's the un- uncertainty. It can kind of wrap its tentacles around your heart and it can cloud your whole life. If you, if you get something that you're worried about, it can affect everything. And it's, it's not just a horrible thing. It's also very common. Um, they, they say that one in ten people, over one in ten people in the population, will at some point in their lives suffer from a panic attack or anxiety attack. So that's a few of us here statistically. And it's not just the extreme examples. I would say probably all of us have something in our lives that if we think about it we might be prone to worry about or feel anxious. Whether it's job security, whether it's our family, our children, our parents, our own marriage, Whatever it might be, our, our, our possessions, our home, there's something in our lives that all of us are prone to feel anxious about. So it's really common. And that's why this is a great uh, passage to be looking at this afternoon. A great bit of Jesus teaching. It's so relevant for each one of us. So if you have a Bible, please open it up. And we're on page 811 in these black Bibles. Uh, if you don't have one of these, then... Um, put a hand up and we'll see if we can pass them along. There's a couple on the front table here. Um, If you want a Bible, Tim can be my designated passer of Bibles. Thanks, Tim. Okay, so we're going to read um, Matthew chapter 6 and from verse 25. Before we do though, um, the the, the passage that we're going to read, it might be familiar to some of you and it's a passage that is often used to teach about uh, worry in general. It's kind of, if you're worried about something in life, this is what, this is what Jesus teaches to deal with it. Um, but actually, the first word in the passage, if you look down, verse 25 of chapter 6 on page 811, under the heading, Do not be anxious, the first word is, therefore. And that gives us a clue that Jesus is, is teaching based on something he's just said. This isn't a, a standalone bit of teaching. It's, it's following on from something he's just said. It actually follows on really um, directly from what we were hearing about last week. And I don't think it's general worry that he's got in view here. I think there's two particular types of worry that he's dealing with. And the causes of these worries are different, and the solution that he prescribes in this passage is the same. So the first kind of worry I think he's dealing with is the kind of worry where um, you're basically not doing what he's just said to do. You're investing your time, your energy, your resources on earth. You're investing in the things of life, the things that surround you, the, the daily needs, making yourself comfortable. And that kind of worry is inevitable. Because Jesus says, the things of earth, well, they, they decay. Moth and rust are going to destroy them. Uh, it's, it's, I think it's really uh, great timing. Completely not our intention, but the first message in this series was on um, June the, whatever it was, 26th, 27th. The first Sunday after the EU referendum when everyone was panicking and everyone was saying, oh no, we're going to leave the EU, the economy's going to nosedive, we'll go into recession, Uh, what about my pensions, what about my investments? Everyone's worrying about money, basically, because in society this life is all there is. We've we've abandoned God and therefore when we're investing in things here, of course we'll be anxious, of course. There's a a story I love about a guy called um, Jack Miller who was a... uh, a missionary and he set up a mission organization and he uh, he was in uganda visiting one of the missionaries who worked for his organization and they were on their way back um and they stopped over in geneva um on their way back and they had a a, a meal they found a cafe to eat in and they um they were ordering their food and they needed a bit of help with the translation so they got a swiss man over and he was helping them turned out that he was a swiss banker he found out that they were missionaries and they got talking and he said oh i used to go to church but um, I don't go anymore. There was nothing that was said in the sermons that I couldn't have thought of myself. And uh, Jack Miller's faced with this person, and he says, um, well, yeah, he first of all acknowledges, yeah, there are lots of shortcomings in church. And then he says this uh, to this man. um, My friend, I think I know something about you. Your inner life is full of deep anxieties. Our new Swiss friend looked astonished. How could you know that about me? He did not for a moment deny the accuracy of the insights. My answer, it is not difficult to know. When you left the church, you were taking control of your own life. You were no longer relying on God's control. Now you have to control your life by yourself. That is anxiety producing because no human being can do it. When we trust in things of this earth, when we invest here, we will be anxious. That's the first kind of worry Jesus talks about. But there's another kind of worry I think he's talking about here. And that's the kind of worry where... We are doing what Jesus says when we are investing in heaven, when we are keeping our eyes on him. Uh, this, this sermon, we need to remember, was preached to Jesus' disciples. And they were people who had left everything to follow Jesus. They'd left their fishing nets, they'd left their jobs, their occupations, their families to follow him around and be his disciples. And Jesus, at the start of Matthew 5, we learn Jesus sat his disciples down and taught them saying all this stuff. That's who he's talking to. These people have given up everything. And it's a bit like when you're climbing a ladder. Um, Last summer, I did some work on our roof. I had to climb up a ladder to get there. And when you're looking at where you're going when you're climbing a ladder, especially when it's somewhere high, it's fine. But I got near the top the first time I went up and looked down. And there's just that moment where you look down and you go, the only thing between me and that concrete floor is this little strip of metal. And you think, am I going to be okay? And it's like that with the disciples. They're following Jesus. Their eyes are on him. They've given up everything. And then they have a moment. You look down and you say, am I going to be okay? And it's that kind of anxiety I think Jesus is also talking about here. And maybe you've experienced that kind of anxiety. Maybe you have uh, made a big decision to follow God in a way that is radical. Um, maybe you've uh, not taken a particular job or a particular promotion that you would otherwise have taken because you're putting him first. Maybe you've uh, chosen to live somewhere or drive a certain kind of car that you wouldn't otherwise have driven because you're choosing to put him first. Maybe you've uh, given a big sum of money to an organisation or, or a charity or a, a movement that you feel passionately was the right thing to do because God's put it on your heart and then the money goes out of your account and you look down and you say, am I going to be okay? Maybe Maybe it's your regular giving. It's just a little bit more than you can afford. And you think, am I going to be okay? Because you're living for him. It's really interesting how this kind of anxiety can, can uh, t- uh, take over our, our hearts. It's a slightly different uh, subject, but um, there was a story in the news a few years ago of uh, an Oxford academic who um, he was a, a master, studying for his, his uh, master's degree and he was living off an income of about 15000 a year. And he did the calculations and worked out that even on that sum of money, he was in the top 4% of the world's population. And that really set him back. He thought, what is going on? When I get a job, he said, he made a a commitment, I'm going to work out how much money I need to live on. And he said, everything I earn over that, I'm going to give away. And he set himself for a level of £20,000. And his wife, who's an NHS nurse, was £25,000. And they live in a fairly small one-bedroom apartment in Oxford. And he, because he's a, an Oxford academic and he's a bit geeky, he did a lot of research to work out the charity that he could give money to that would be the most effective in terms of extending human life because he was concerned about the, 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 the poverty in our world and the inequality. And he worked out the most effective way he could spend his money was in treating tropical diseases in Africa. That would be the, 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 the extension of people's lives that would be the most from what he gave. So that's what he does. And he calculated that over the course of his lifetime, he would give a million pounds away to charity if he, if he kept doing that. And it's really interesting. You read the article on the internet and um, scroll down beyond the article and read the comments. And there's a real division between people saying, oh, if everyone did this, the world would be a better place. That, that there'd be no inequality. What a great guy. He puts us all to shame. And other people who are saying, no way. My money is my money and my security. I would never do that. And even people saying, what about his pension? What about his family? What about his children if he has any? He's being so irresponsible. Is that that, that same feeling of, well, if I did give, then what would happen? And maybe you're in that place. Maybe you haven't given, but you're thinking about it. Maybe uh, you're in a position where you, you listened to the message last week and you're thinking about investing in heaven and, and putting God's kingdom first in, in a radical way. And you're thinking, well... Maybe I need to give to this cause, or maybe I need to not go for that job, or maybe I need to live in this place or not own this, or whatever it is. And you're thinking about some change that's going to make a practical difference to your life and involve sacrifice. And you're going, but what about me? And it's that kind of anxiety I think Jesus talks about here, as well as the anxiety that comes from when we're investing on earth. Two different causes, but the solution is the same. So both types, the solution is bring God back into the picture. Bring God back into the picture. If you're living for this life, Jesus says, change your focus. Live for God. That's the only thing that is worth living for. That's the only thing that will, that will, where you'll reap uh, rewards in heaven. If you're living for this life, focus on God. But if you're living for God, keep your focus on God. Keep looking to him. Bring God back into the picture. So let's read. Let's read the passage and see what Jesus has to say and speak into this kind of anxiety that we can struggle with. So I'm going to read from verse 25 of Matthew chapter 6. Do not be anxious. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So there's three things that Jesus wants us to know about God that are going to help us deal with anxiety. First one, God is really there. Now Jesus doesn't say this explicitly. He kind of assumes it. He teaches with the uh, assumption that God is there and interacts with his world. But we don't have that assumption in our society. We don't have the the assumption that God is there and interacts with the world. So we have to say it explicitly. And this is the first thing we need to know about God. He's really there. He really exists. There's uh, different ways of viewing um, our world. The most common way of viewing the universe in our society, I think, is that it's a closed universe. So we have that diagram on the screen. This, This way of understanding the universe is... Uh, that basically everything that happens in the world is uh, a product of natural causes. Everything can be explained within the circle, if you like. So every single uh, human emotion, relationships, everything that we experience, everything that we see, all of, all of our society, um, can be explained by natural causes. It's a very uh, reductionistic view of the universe. Everything is explained basically by science. Um, naturalism. So this is the, the worldview of people like Richard Dawkins, people who will preach that um, scientific naturalism is the way to explain the world. And it's very common in our society. Everything we see can be explained by cause and effect. There's a, a closed universe. But it's not the only way that people have seen the universe, particularly um, in ancient cultures and in other tribal cultures these days. Um, there's another view of the universe, which is an open universe. So in this view of the universe there are many gods and uh, these gods respond to our actions and uh, these gods can then affect our world and this is kind of interaction between humans and, and gods. And the gods are whimsical, they can change their minds, so we have to do things to, to please them. So that's where you get these kind of rituals and tribal kind of taboos and uh, sacrifices, things going on. People believing that the universe is basically open. And the Bible says no, it's neither of those two. The universe isn't closed or open. The universe is controlled. So God has set up uh, a natural universe uh, with cause and effect, with natural laws that operate according to the, the, the rhythms he's set in place. But within that, God can intervene. And our prayers can go to him and make a difference, and then he can act in the world and make a difference in the world. That's the worldview of the Bible. And that's the worldview that Jesus preaches here. If you noticed, he says, the birds don't just find their food themselves. They're fed by God even though it's a natural, natural cause, everything that happens is sustained every moment of the day, the Bible says, by Jesus. Everything it operates because he is in the world. And the, and the flowers of the field, uh, they don't just look pretty because of uh, sunlight and the soil and whatever, whatever natural cause is. No, God clothes the flowers. God is over and above everything and nothing happens outside of his sovereign control. And that is hugely comforting. That's got to be our first response to worry. God is really there. The universe really is controlled by him. He really does sit over and above it. It's not just natural causes. He can intervene, and he does. He does intervene in response to our prayers. Hugely comforting, especially because of number two. Number two, God is not just really there. God is a gracious provider. And that's what Jesus says in verses 25, 26 through to verse uh, 30 where he gives these examples of the birds and the lilies. He says, look at the birds. They don't sow or reap or store into barns. You never see the birds and the the, the creatures, the animals God has made, um, sowing seed into the field and watering it and weeding and taking care of it. And you don't see them getting their combine harvesters out, like Ben's about to do in a few weeks' time, and reaping and storing into barns so they've got enough food for the winter. You don't see uh, birds doing that, because God provides for them. And you don't see lilies toiling and spinning. You don't see a, a beautiful flower getting their sewing machine out, going to the shop and buying some material and getting down and working the, working the, the, the material into a piece of uh, garment and, and taking the measurements and making sure it fits. They don't do any of that. God clothes them. He does it. Why? Because that's what he's like. Because he's a generous provider. It's just, that's what our God is like. The God of the Bible, the God of the universe, is a Father, a Son, and a Holy Spirit. He is Father, Son, Holy Spirit, as one working together, and he created the universe because he has always been generous. He has always been loving. The Father has always loved the Son. The reason he made everything we see was an overflow of his goodness and generosity, an abundant love. And he's the kind of God who, when he makes something will care for it because he's generous. He doesn't just create the birds and say, get on with it, your responsibility now. He feeds them and provides for them. And if you're a Christian, if you know God as your father, then he treats you with the same kind of generosity and love. That abundant, overflowing goodness that resulted in this world we see with all of its glory and all of its intricacy and all of its complexity, the God who created all of that, you... If you are one of his children, you are in his sights. All of that generosity is focused on you. You're in his crosshairs. He wants to give to you. He wants to feed you. He wants to provide for you. He's a generous God. So if he's your father, then you don't need to worry. He's really there. He's a generous provider. Number three, he knows your needs. He knows your needs. That's what it says in verses 31 through Don't be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. What does it mean to seek first God's kingdom? It's, it basically means the same thing that we were talking about last week, investing treasure in heaven. It's putting God first. It's making him your priority. It's when you come to a decision, making that decision based on his values and not your own. Based on what's going to benefit his kingdom and not yours. Based on what's going to benefit your relationship with him and other people's relationships with him. And people who don't know him yet, their possible relationships with him. Whatever the decision, whether it's something big, like what job you go for, what, what house you buy, whether you enter this relationship with this person that you're attracted to, the massive decisions or whether it's the, the tiny decisions like who am I going to speak to when I walk into this room or I've got a free evening, how am I going to spend it the tiny things of life, every decision we make big or small, it's saying I'm going to make that decision based on his values and his priorities and not my own seeking God's kingdom, it's making God your only focus making him your only aim making him your, your passion, your driving force, and here's the point If you're doing that, if you're living for him, and if you're making sacrifices for him, if that results in changes to your lifestyle that are costly, he knows that. He sees that. He's your father. He sees your need. And he will provide for you. He's not going to let you go hungry. Um, We're not talking here about careless living. We're not talking about not bothering about um, our daily needs. We need to eat and we need to provide enough money on the table and food on the table for our children to eat it's not saying um, i don't think this passage is saying that it's wrong to have a pension or it's wrong to have savings i think what it's saying is focusing on those things and putting your treasure in those things and seeking those things first to the point where you don't do things which would benefit god's kingdom where you don't invest in heaven where you you withhold and draw back and you're essentially living for yourself in a selfish way. That is what this passage is saying is wrong. It's saying, seek God's kingdom first, put him first, and he'll provide for your needs. A great example of this is um, someone you may have heard of called George Muller. So he lived in Bristol, um, just uh, down the road from us, about uh, 200 years ago. Um, And he was a pastor of a church in Bristol. And at the time he was he was ministering. There was an outbreak of cholera. And the conditions were really poor. And many children were orphaned and were being sent to work in the workhouses. And God really put on his heart that he should provide for these children and start an orphanage for these children. And he had no money. and he, But he went for it in faith. And his operating principle was that he would never ask people for money. He would never ask people for donations. He would just pray and trust God to provide. So the first house that he rented he needed £1,000. He didn't have anything. He prayed for it, and God provided it in a few months. And he started the first home um, with about 30 children. And 35 years later, without asking for a single amount of money, uh, that, that had grown to uh, 2,000 children in Bristol, in, in the Ashley Down Orphanage. You can still see it today. as a college now. It's a wonderful building. Um, this guy left a legacy, but what, what his, his principle was, I'm going to trust God. God's my father. He knows my needs. And there's so many stories of ways that God provided for him. One story, um, which I love, was from a girl who was at the orphanage at the time that George Muller uh, set it up. She said, um, one, one morning there was no food in the orphanage. And they came down that morning, and there, there, was, there was no food, um, but they, they needed breakfast. So George Muller uh, got them sitting down. The, the places were laid. They sat down, uh, no food at the table. He bowed his head and gave thanks to God for the food they were going to have. And there was a knock on the door and uh, it was the, the milkman and he'd, he, his cart had broken down and uh, he'd, um, he didn't want to leave his cart because the milk would go off. He was just outside so he came in and wanted George Muller to have all the milk because he was going to just throw it away anyway. Um, another knock on the door and a baker came and with a uh, hundred loaves of bread and said, I was, I was praying last night and God just put it on my heart that I should bring this bread to you next morning. And so many stories about, like that, about the way God provided for him as he prayed in faith. And you can go to stories like that. There's, there's, there's many more of them, of great Christians, men of faith, who have had God provide for them when they've prayed. But it's not just in big things. It's in, in small things as well that God answers prayers. And I, you know, I've, I've experienced the same thing on a, a smaller scale. But um, a, a few years ago, um, sort of late 2011, uh, Hannah and I were thinking about Um, ways that we could uh, move forward and where God wanted to take us, how to serve him. And I've been thinking for a while, I wanted to get a bit more training in in the Bible and theology and ministry. An opportunity came up to do Cordeo, the course that's uh, run by Peter, which is a six-month full-time course and would require me to to quit my job, basically, for six months. Um, Hannah was bringing up Chloe, full-time mum, to not earn any money. And we decided to go for it and we decided to pray, ask God to provide and uh, we went for it, and I, I took a, a unpaid leave from my, from my job. And at the end of that, those six months, um, we were supported by, by our church, by friends, family. I did the accounts and looked up uh, how much we'd spent and how much income we'd received. And it was within £100, the, the amount that we'd received from the amount that we'd spent. And that was a huge uh, blessing to me, thinking I didn't know that before we started. But God provided just what we needed, just the right amount. Amazing. He's a God who's our Father. And if you're serving Him, if you're giving your life to Him, He knows your needs, and He'll provide for you. You may, at this point, have a little question in your mind. I know as I was reading this passage, I had this question in my, in my mind. The question is, well, that's what Jesus teaches all very well. But the reality is, there are many, many Christians in the world, hundreds, thousands, possibly even millions in the world, who do go hungry. Many Christians who do starve. Many who Christians who, who don't have clothes. So what about them? If God's their father, why doesn't he provide for them? And I don't want to brush that issue over the carpet, under the carpet. It's, it's a hard uh, question. I think it's, it's, there are no easy answers to that question uh, of why God doesn't provide. I think there are some things we can say. I think one thing we can say is that um, this world isn't the way that God meant it to be. So when God set up uh, the, the Israelite nation, his kind of kingdom on earth, he said, there shall be no poor among you. His, his intention for that community was that there wouldn't be any poor people. They would redistribute the wealth, the, the, the food, um, regularly, so there was no one poor. That was God's intention. And he has actually provided enough resources on earth for everyone. Usually, almost always, the reason that people are hungry and starving is human greed and human violence, and and sinfulness. This world is not the way God meant it to be. Uh, Another thing that we can say is that God doesn't promise no trouble. Actually, the last verse in our passage says, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Other translations say, tomorrow will have enough troubles of its own. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. God doesn't say we won't experience any trouble, but God says, when we do experience hardship... When we do experience suffering, you can trust your father in it because he's good, because he provides for you. And ultimately, we can also say God, God will provide fully for all of his children in heaven. There will be a day when there'll be no more suffering, no more nakedness, no more hunger, and every one of his children will experience the goodness that he made them for. There's, there's one person who I think knows this reality of hardship and suffering in the Christian life more than most. Um, a chap called uh, Helmut Thielecker. He was a German theologian and a professor. He, um, he was a pastor and he preached uh, through the Sermon on the Mount in the years 1946 to 48. So he'd been in Germany during the war. And in those sermons, spanning two years, we're taking three weeks, he took two years, he frequently referred to the horrors of war that he and his, and his hearers had lived through. Um, Here's what he says in in one of his sermons. We know the sight and the sound of homes collapsing in flames. Our own eyes have seen the red blaze, and our own ears have heard the sounds of crashing, falling, shrieking. Nevertheless, I think we must stop and listen when this man, whose life on earth was anything but bird-like and lily-like, points us to the carefreeness of the birds and the lilies were not the somber shadows of the cross already looming over this hour of the Sermon on the Mount? He's saying, yes, we've experienced hardship. And yes, there are people in the world who experience hardship. We've gone through things that we would rather never have gone through. But when you think about who said these words, that gives them weight. Because Jesus, in his life on earth, he experienced the kind of suffering and hardship that none of us have ever and will ever experience. And as he said these words, he knew he'd be going to the cross. He knew he'd be going to a place where he was going to experience suffering and hardship deeper than anyone had ever experienced. And he was going to experience pain worse than anyone had ever experienced. And it's him who says, don't worry. It's Jesus who says, trust your father. And that carries weight. Because he lived this. When he says, seek first the kingdom of God and these things will be added to you, Jesus is the ultimate example of seeking first God's kingdom. He put God first in everything. He left his job, he left his family and lived the life of a travelling preacher without comfort, without always nice beds to sleep in, sometimes nowhere to lay his head, he says. He left all that to follow God's will. He always did what God wanted and he gave the ultimate price. Ultimate, He gave everything. He gave his life in seeking first the kingdom of God. And in all of that, he trusted his father to provide for him. He trusted his father even when he knew he was heading for hunger and thirst and nakedness on the cross. And as he approached the cross, he trusted God enough to say, not my will, but yours be done. If it's possible, if it's possible, take this cup from me. Take away what I've got to go through. Take away the pain I'm going to experience. Take away the pain of seeing your face turned away when I've known your love from all eternity. Take away that pain, if it's possible. But not my will, but yours be done. I'm going to trust you, Father, because you're my my God and you'll provide for me. And now, Jesus stands on the other side of that death. He stands on the other side of that death, his Father having provided and raised him from the dead, and he now stands with his arms open and it's like he's saying to us this is how much me and my father love you this is what we did for you this is what we went through for you so you can trust us you can trust this God you can trust this God enough to put his kingdom first you can trust him enough to make those costly decisions to give when it hurts even when you're tempted to look down and say what about me you can trust him enough to take care of your needs you can trust him enough to provide for you because of who he is. And this is what we want to characterise us. We're talking about values. This is what we want to characterise us as a church when it comes to money and finances. To be a church with our eyes on God, seeking first his kingdom, enough to make costly sacrifices, and trusting him enough to do what it takes to see his kingdom come. That's our heart for the church. Wouldn't it be great if we were a church like that? A church with our eyes on God, trusting he's our father, to provide for us whatever happens. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we want to say uh, thank you so much that you are there. Thank you that you have every single part of this world under your control. Thank you that you are a gracious provider, a generous provider that you love to give. And thank you that you know our needs. Thank you that you never let one of your children uh, go uncared for and we are never out of your sight. Thank you, Father. I pray that you would uh, lift our hearts, lift our eyes to you so that we would be people who Seek first your kingdom, who give when it hurts, who make sacrifices that cost, because we know that you're there, and we know that you will provide, because we know that you're our Father. Amen.